This is Combo Shenanigans, episode 310, a conversation with Howard Mackey. Welcome to Comic Shenanigans. This is episode 310. It's our conversation with Howard Mackey episode, and I'm your host, Adam Chapman. Uh, today's episode, we get to sit down with Howard to talk about uh, his work at Marvel Comics, as well as specifically his work on Ghost Rider, on Spider-Man, etc. Uh, and at some point in the future, we hope to have him back for another episode to expand a little bit more on Mutant X and some other uh, fan-favorite topics as we try to kind of encompass his entire career in this episode. So in the future, we'll be able to take a more of a uh, specific spotlight on some you know, areas of his career that people are very, uh, more, more, not very interested in, but definitely have more of a, a, a unique interest in, especially his Mutant X work. That seems to be something that people are very excited about. Uh, I wanted to thank some people who contributed questions for this episode. Uh, there were some questions that came through the Marvel, Marvel Masterworks Forum. Um, and so specifically, I want to thank users Shotzi, uh, Avengers Fan 2, um, who else we got? Uh, Rift. Uh, as well as uh, Jag2015 uh, and Goat Goblet. And if I miss someone else who I used a question, oh, sorry, Boggins, uh, Goat Goblet again, the Comico. Uh, I tried to incorporate your questions as much as possible. So thank you very much for contributing those questions. They were definitely helpful. And um, I think got a better interview out of it because we were able to ask some interesting and specific questions. Uh, so thank you for. Submitting those as well. Um, upcoming episodes, episode three twelve will be our at least should be a, a new conversation with Fabian Nicieza as we talk a little bit more about his career. Uh, last time we did more of a retrospective. This time we're looking to do something uh, a little bit different. Uh, talking obviously about his most recent work as well as doing some writer commentary. At least as of this uh, this recording, that's what I'm hoping to do. Um, but we haven't actually recorded the episode yet, so we'll see what happens. Uh, also. Um, we're going to have an episode coming up with uh, Mike Perkins, uh, who is a fantastic artist. Uh, you may know him best as an inker, but he's also an amazing penciler. Uh, he recently did the Deathlock series, as well as uh, the upcoming Carnage series with Jerry Conway. Uh, so that will probably be episode 314, coming out in about two weeks. So without further ado, though, let, we're going to actually... We're, we're about to get into the episode, but some little bit of uh, reminders. If you want to email us, you can do so at comicshenanigans at gmail.com. Like us on Facebook, rate and review us on iTunes, subscribe to us on iTunes, listen to us on Stitcher, um, and you can also post our H2 Realms threads when they eventually go up. So thank you so much uh, for downloading this episode, and let's get right into the conversation with Howard Backey. Howard, welcome to Comic Shenanigans. How are you doing today? I'm doing well, Adam. Thanks for having me. Thank you for joining us. Uh, now, usually the first question I like to ask people is uh, when it comes to their kind of experience with comics, when did you first kind of get introduced to comics? When did comics become part of your life? Well, well, it was before I could read. I, uh, I have three older sisters. I'm, I'm the baby of the family and uh, spoiled uh, terribly or wonderfully, uh, <laughs> depending on who, who, who's looking at it. And my sisters were all working while I was still very young and um, they thought a nice sisterly thing to do would be uh, every payday on their way home uh, and I grew up in, in Brooklyn, New York and so on the way home involved a, a subway and in those days every subway had a newsstand um, at every station and so on paydays they would stop by and 
pick up some comic books for their baby brother. And sometimes for themselves as well. So as a result, I probably started out with Archie's and uh, Little Dot and Richie Rich. But uh, very gradually, they, they moved into uh, Batman, Superman, and Spider-Man. Now, when you were growing up, who, who was your favorite characters? Uh, well, I, I, again, you know, I really, I did, I did start out with all of the Archie comics and and the Harvey comics, and, and so those, those were particularly fun as as a young kid. But as soon as I got into superheroes, and uh, yeah, I'm of an age where I was watching the the uh, Superman uh, television show when it <laughs> was on uh, with George Reeves, and um, not to date yourself too much, right? No, no. <laughs> well, no, I probably, I, possibly, I think I was watching it in reruns. I think it even predates me. But I was, I was a, a child when uh, Batman uh, with, with Adam West and Burt Ward uh, came on, and I, I loved that. Although personally, I thought uh, Green Hornet and Kato were cooler. <laughs> <laughs> TV show, uh, and started me out as a uh, lifelong uh, Bruce Lee fan and um, dabbling in the martial arts on and off most of my life. But uh, honestly, then I discovered Marvel Comics, and and that was it. I mean, you know, I mean, Spider-Man, uh, I, I have very fond memories uh, during winters um, getting together with a group of friends at somebody's house and us sitting around uh their dining room table and we would just be swapping passing comic books back and forth to each other and we would spend a lot of time trying to copy what we were seeing uh, drawing what we were seeing happening in the panels and it wasn't until years later just just to digress a little bit as a, a an early reader i did not pay attention to credits at all so i was not that kind of fan early on i wasn't look i wasn't following um writers or artists I was following characters. And so when I was drawing those Spider-Man um, comic books, I, I really wasn't paying any attention to who it was. And then you fast forward many years later, and I got to meet and work with Jean Romita Sr. And it was like a little light bulb moment. And that happened for me a number of times during my career. But early on, I would say I became a real Marvel fan. But I also, I, I, I have had and have you know um, wide taste <laughs> character. I, I was a big fan of uh, DC's The Atom and, and Adam Strange um, and I loved the Atomic Knights <laughs> you know from, all from from that other company but <laughs> once, once I discovered Marvel you know I pretty much loved all of the characters in, in, you know, that were, were being published by Marvel at that time now, when did you decide you wanted to be a writer or a comic book writer specifically? Well, I didn't. <laughs> uh, I, I was more or less forced into it. Um, I I got into working in comic books as uh, in the uh, editorial department. I started out at Marvel as an assistant editor to Mark Grunewald. And the way I got that was I grew up with a guy who I think went on to do some stuff in comic books. His name's Mike Carlin. Oh, wow. Um, and um, Mike and I, we, we grew up together. And um, uh, the way we became friends was on. It was in Brooklyn, and we were, we were in, a, in, a, in a, a place where large groups of people were hanging out. And as I always like to say, um, Mike was the coolest guy of the, the 
nerdy crowd, and I was the nerdiest guy of the cool crowd. And gradually, we just discovered each other. <laughs> oh, you like comic books? I like comic books, too. And um, that's how Mike and I became friends and maintained our friendship uh, for years. And then when he, he started out working at Marvel as Mark Greenwald's assistant editor, was promoted after a few years. At that time, I was working for um, an exporting company. And it was, I mean, it, I loved the people there, but it was not a, a job or a career that I had a real affinity for. And I think he was tired of hearing me whine about that. <laughs> and suggested to me that I, um, I apply for this job. Um, because I was, I had drifted away from comic books a little bit um, during my late teen years and early twenties. But when Mike started working at Marvel, I, uh, it, it reignited my interest, and he was providing me with comics as well. <laughs> so I was very up to date on continuity at that point. So Mike said, "Well, why don't you apply for the job? What's the worst that can happen?" And so I, I applied for the job. It turned out it was going to pay significantly less than I was making <laughs> at the exporting company. Oh, wow. And I thought, okay, well, I'll stay there for a little while until I can figure out what else I want to do with my life. And um, I walked in the job. Well, I got the job. <laughs> Jumping to the, that part of the story, I, I, I applied, I was interviewed, I took a long battery of tests, and then, then I, I got the job. And I walked into the office that I was going to be sharing with Mark Grunwald, and sitting on the couch was a very attractive young lady. Her, her name was Deborah, and um, a few months later we started dating, and then we got married, and uh, we now have two kids that are still together. Um, and I was working as an assistant editor uh, for Mark at the time that Denny O'Neill was writing Iron Man. And Mark knew I had an interest in writing, um, but I was, you know, I wasn't trying to break into comics on any by any stretch of the imagination. Um, and uh, Denny O'Neill was leaving Marvel to go to work for DC right in the middle of his Iron Man run, and David McElhinney was going to be taking over, but there was going to be one issue in between, and Mark wanted somebody to wrap up the. Uh, storyline that Denny had had left, <laughs> uh, you know, un unwrapped. So he and I were brainstorming and sitting, you know, sitting in our desks across from one another. And he said, "Yeah, we need to find somebody to write this story." I said, "Yeah, we do." And he said, "Yeah, it needs to be somebody who's very familiar with the continuity and where it's going to be going." And I said, "Yeah, it does." And he said, "It's going to be you." <laughs> and I said, oh, no, 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 no. And he said, oh, you're mistaking that for a request. <laughs> and <laughs> I, that was my first uh, writing assignment was forced. Um, it went, and it was twofold on, on Mark's part. He felt that anybody who was going to work on the editorial side of the desk should have some experience on the creator side of the desk um, so that they, you know, they, they knew how to interact uh, with creators. And so... I wrote and rewrote and rewrote and rewrote that story many, many times in a day, and this will date me in a, 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 a time in which cutting and pasting involved scissors and scotch tape. Uh, <laughs> and um, uh, Iron Man number 211, and 
horribly embarrassed by so much of it, <laughs> but it was it was my 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 first um, professional writing job, and I am very fortunate to have the splash page of that um, book hanging over my desk right now because uh, I worked with Alex Saviak, uh, who was a phenomenal artist, an amazing storyteller, uh, saved me many many times, <laughs> uh, <laughs> and he went art was returned to him he got the splash page and he came into my office and he he handed it to me and i said oh alex i can't do that and he said howard this is the first time your your name is going to appear in print with the the uh title writer underneath it and i feel like you know i'm sure there are going to be many many others other times he was correct on that and uh i thought you you, you should have this page and so it, it is i have i have a bunch of uh, artwork from individuals that I've worked with and items that I've collected and they're all very special to me, but that, that, that stands above them all for me uh, because it was um, given to me with, you know, uh, you know, great affection and it was received with equal affection. Wow. Um, yeah. So anyway, I don't know. See, I, I totally, I warned you, you asked me a question and I'm going to wander. I don't even remember what the original question was. It was, it was, how did you, uh, how did you decide to want to be a writer? And it's funny, I had two other questions to come afterwards of which you've already now answered, which was, oh, uh, which was, how did you get involved in the comic book industry and how did you become a Marvel editor? And you answered both of those. There you go, Mike Carlin. And anybody who doesn't like my work, I always say to them, blame Mike Carlin. <laughs> Now, when you were, I guess, were uh, still kind of learning as a writer, you did also did a one-off issue of uh, a Power Pack. Yes, I did. Now, what was that? What was actually? I, I want to ask. What was it like just kind of doing these one-offs? I mean, you described the process of doing the Iron Man, but there were some <laughs> yeah. other fill-ins you did as well. What was what was that like? Well, it was. I mean, it, it was great um, training because I got to work with um, different editors, and every editor has a different editorial style. But the, the way you get those fill-ins, or in the in back in the day, the way those villains happened was that, um, for the most part, editors liked to assign a villain that they could have in the drawer. I did it as an editor. Um, as a matter of fact, um, you know, Squirrel Girl is all the rage in <laughs> at Marvel right now. That that started out as a an Iron Man fill. She she was debuted in an Iron Man villain story. Oh really. Uh, that, oh yeah, that uh, uh, the writer Will Murray uh, did at my request. He he, he was doing he, he was the writer of the uh, Destroyer Black and White comic that I was editing at the time, and he um, had called me said, you know, Howard, I'd really like to try my hand at something involving a you know Marvel character. And I said, okay, well, you know, pitch me some ideas, and we'll we'll see what happens. And he came to me with you know it was you know a, a silly story um, with, involving Iron Man and this character called Squirrel Girl.
that second explanation is closer to how I got the job on um, on Iron Man. I, my recollection was the Power Pack one was I was working for Carl Potts. He was the editor, and he had seen. You know, as soon as, soon as the Iron Man issue um, came out, suddenly, you know, uh, you know, the editors read it, and it, it seemed to have been uh, well received. And there was another warm body uh, to, um, <laughs> to to help out. And uh, you know, that's it. I, I, I think I want to preemptively um, uh, correct what I think is a, a mistaken assumption that editors went out of their way to assign work to other editors um, was never the case. I mean, you, you, you have to remember this was at a time before the internet, before, you know, before easy access to everyone. Frequently, assignments, especially villain assignments, were assigned because there was somebody standing in front of the editor. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it was like, I need help. You, you can write something or you can draw something will you do this for me? And so I got the Iron Man assignment. And actually, I think my the next thing I did after Iron Man um, was not even, I'm not even sure if it was the Power Pack issue because I did, um, I remember uh, Don Daly, who was the editor of the, the, this project called Chuck Norris and his Karate Commandos. <laughs> uh, and it was a licensed book, obviously. And, um, Don asked me if I wanted to tackle it, and again, as I, I think I, I, I mentioned at one point that I, I have a, a familiarity with the martial arts, so um, it seemed like a natural fit for Don to have me doing it. Um, so that's how I got that, and then, and then I got another licensed project, which was called Air Raiders, which was a, uh, it was a, a, a toy. Uh, project, which I think there were great hopes that it was going to become the next Transformers, and it didn't work out that way. Uh, um, and then somewhere in there, then I had the Power Pack uh, job with um, uh, with Carl Potts, and you know, when you know, when I spoke to Carl, I spoke to Louise at the time, Louise Simonson, and figured out what you know what I could do, what I maybe should stay away from in terms of continuity, and then. I used a character that was created by Mark Grunewald, Madcap, uh, who I had a, a particular affection for because really reminded me of, of Mark. Um, and um, uh, anyway, so that yeah, I think I, I think I covered that uh, answer, didn't I? <laughs> yes, you did. And I want to ask a question, uh, something that you you alluded to or discussed uh, with the Squirrel Girl concept. How how did Steve Ditko end up being the artist who created that character? Interesting. You should should ask this because I think I may have the answer. I, <laughs> I and ju- ju- just got the answer this week, as a matter of fact. Oh, really? Or, or last week? Because I I am still friends with um, both Will Murray, who was the writer, and Tom Morgan, who we both recommend or recollect as being the first artist we had in mind. And, and, uh, Will, Tom, and I just had a little round robin on Facebook <laughs> discussing this. I, I number one, I had forgotten that um, Tom was originally going to get the assignment. I think that that's who um, uh, Will had requested. And my recollection afterwards was that Tom had gotten too busy. 
uh, to be able to take it. So we had assigned it uh, to Steve. But what it was was I, I personally I have a real affection for uh, Steve Ditko's artwork, and at any chance to work with him, I I jumped at it. And so I I've, I've worked with Steve a number of times in um, at, you know at, at Marvel. Um, and my the way Tom recalls is he had come to my office at that point. You know he was thinking about doing the the, the Iron Man Squirrel Girl issue, and I got a phone call from Steve Ditko while Tom was in the office looking for work. Oh. And, um, I looked at at Tom, and he just not, and according to Tom, he just you know he nodded his head, and, <laughs> and so I sent the blood off. But, I mean, you know, I, if, if Steve did, you know, my, my philosophy then, and I feel it should be everybody's philosophy now, is if Steve Ditko wants to um, uh, do a, work on something, uh, Marvel should should find something for him to do. Because, uh, you know, for me it was just a thrill. As an editor, any time that I got to work with Steve, uh, he would come into the office to deliver pages and he would start... He would always narrate the pages for you, He'd put oh, them really? down in front of you, and then as though you couldn't tell what was going on from his storytelling, he would say, "Okay, and so in this panel, this happens, and da 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 da." You know, Iron Man does this, Scorpio does, and I have to be completely honest, and I've said this a number of times. When that would happen, the only thing that would be going through my head is, "Oh my God, it's Steve Ditko! Oh my God, it's Steve Ditko! Oh my God, it's Steve Ditko!" Because you know, I, I mean, I. I I still, I mean, Steve Ditko's Spider-Man and Doctor Strange in particular, I have great affection for as, you know, as a fan. And, you know, he was incredibly, was always a, an incredibly professional uh, individual to, to work with um, when I was, when I got, I had the opportunity to work with him as his editor. Um, so that, that, that's how I believe it happened, how he, he got that score girl uh, issue. Now, as you were starting to write more and more for Marvel, how did you end up being one of the, I guess, I'm not going to say, well, I guess one of the kind of regular writers for Solo Avengers and Marvel Comics Presents? Yeah, uh, well, um, two different situations. Um, uh, Solo Avengers um, came about because, again, I had started to write more and more, and um, Mark Grunewald was the editor of uh, Solo Avengers at that time, and he was looking for somebody who could um, and again this is a few years ago this is my recollection but somebody who had a familiarity with you know the the, the breadth of Marvel's uh, stable of characters happened to have been trained as an editor under Mark Grunewald who was the guardian of all of these characters uh, you know as the the editor of um, the official handbook of the Marvel Universe so I got to know a lot of the more obscure characters, and Mark had a real affection for the obscure characters. And as a result, a lot of the he would come to me as the editor and just say, "Yeah, Howard, I think what we really need is a Hawkeye versus the Orb story." <laughs> and and I okay. And he also happened to have known. And this will, I'm sure, lead into another question coming up. Um, he knew that I had a real uh, affinity for. Ghost Rider, and you know, and the Orb was a Ghost Rider villain. And he thought that, and I, I think that might have even been my first story. It was probably a tryout, and he liked what I did, and 
Um, and then we, we went on from there. Um, my, my recollection with Marvel Comics Presents was that happened after um, Ghost Rider had, had launched. And um, they, I think my, actually my first story for Marvel Comics Presents, and I can't believe I can remember all of these details now, <laughs> is I think I did a, um, uh, a Havoc... Uh, was it Havoc and Wolverine story? Was that? Uh, I, I I I would have to look it up, but <laughs> yes, I, I know it was a Havoc story, and um uh and then when Ghost Rider launched and was uh, it was it was pretty successful <laughs> the the relaunch of Ghost Rider, um they decided they wanted a um a Ghost Rider feature in um in uh, Marvel Comics Presents, uh kind of as an anchor story. And, you know, Terry Cavanaugh, who was the editor at the time and, and is now a very good friend of mine, he, he thought it would be good if he could get the regular writer of Ghost Rider to be doing uh, the, the Ghost Rider feature. And this way, that makes so much sense on so many levels, uh, because for Terry, Marvel Comics Presents was a logistic um, uh nightmare in that you know when you're using everybody else's characters all the other editors every story has to be approved hmm. and so he felt like if he could get the the regular writer of ghost rider to do it it was one step closer to getting approved because there would be less conflict um, and better consistency for the character as well oh, absolutely and that you know so that when he was presenting um uh the the stories for approval to the editor he knew he wasn't going the editor was not she was not going to come back to to him and say oh well this doesn't work with what's going on this month with Ghost Rider because if that happened then Terry got to yell at me uh, <laughs> because I, I was the guy in charge of keeping all of that straight now I will get the Ghost Rider obviously but chronologically uh, before we kind of get into that sure. uh, you were also the editor of West Coast Avengers during John Byrne's run I was indeed. Now, I actually this is a, a listener question. They're saying, when you were editor of West Coast Avengers, what were your favorite aspects of being John Byrne's editor during that run? Uh, <laughs> John um, is, in my from my experience, he was an editor's dream to work with, um, and and I know that John's reputation is, is maybe contrary to that statement, but. I, I I had a very good working relationship with John, and I, I've maintained a, a a friendship with him. Um, but I, I I felt like, but you know what? I'm gonna I'm gonna take a step back, and I'm gonna explain my philosophy as an editor, and it feeds directly into to um, how and why I worked so well with John Byrne. Um, my my philosophy as an editor was. That I didn't want to be writing those books. <laughs> Any book I was editing, I had to take off the the writer's hat and you know realize that it was a very very different uh, job uh, to be the editor. And I felt like the the best thing I could do as an editor, first and foremost, was to hire the right uh, creative team. And so and the way you do that is you 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 figure out who you want to talk to. And you um, you make sure that your vision for the book and your philosophy on the book and the characters are 
in sync, and then you let them do their job, okay? And with you, you always being, you know, the, the guiding force when necessary, the sounding board, absolutely. Um, but, you know, an editor's main job is to, at least the way I saw it and the way I was trained at the time, was to be the shepherd of the characters. You know, first and foremost, that's, we, we, we were concerned about the characters only. Because every writer comes in and has the great idea of, you know, uh, killing off um, a, a major character or a hero or, uh, God knows, you know, having a character turned into a clone. Um, <laughs> but, um, um, well, that would never work. Um, and then, um, uh, you know, the, the job of the writer uh, or the editor is to always ask, oh, yeah, and then what happens next month? <laughs> so um, I, when, when I came on to um, uh, West Coast Avengers, um, the, um, the sales were not where Marvel wanted them to be. Uh, and they, they, and they, they were going in a negative direction. Um, and so I was asked to, to make changes. Um, in in, um, in in the in the books and in the creative team, and so I had had a previous working relationship with John Byrne on um, on uh, Starbrand for the New Universe line of books, and uh, I it, it is it is a, something I've joked about with um, uh, with John and with others that you know I, I had a very simple way of getting John to to do the work that. I was hoping he would take the assignments that I was hoping he would take, which was to call him and, well, I remember specifically on Starbrand, I called him and he answered the phone and, you know, he knew I had just gotten the promotion. He said, yeah, what do you want me to do, a New Universe book? And I said, well, you, you don't have any ideas for Starbrand, do you? And he he say, "Oh, come on, Howard." And I say, "Yeah, yeah, never mind, John. I, I was overstating. You're, you know, never mind." I said, "Thanks so much for even answering the phone." And I hung up the phone. And an hour later, John Byrne called me up and said, oh, "Damn it, Howard! Ever since you hung up the phone, all I've been able to do was think about uh, Starbrand stories." And so that's how I got him on that. So I, you know, I am I'm not stupid. I I, I learn to you know follow a, a successful. Uh, model that has worked for me in the past so when I needed to make the changes on West Coast Avengers I picked up the phone I called up John Byrne <laughs> and I said John you, you've, you've never even considered writing something like West Coast Avengers did you and before he could say another word I said yeah, you're, never mind never mind so sorry and I hung up and he called me back an hour later cursing me out and uh, he, he, took, he took the assignment I happened to have I had was a space of time. It was probably three, four weeks between the time I, I assigned him and then before I started getting the original art in. But what happened in between, I had had a, a, a vacation schedule. Uh, my wife and I went to England just, you know, for, for just just to visit. And um, there, were, there were a couple of issues. I had to deal with phone calls while I was there and, you know, all that. But I got back to the office mildly jet-lagged. I sit down at my desk and there were Two, the first two completed issues of West Coast Avengers penciled and uh, scripted sitting on my desk. And so the first thing I got to do coming back from England was read 
two really fun stories. <laughs> and so that was my working relationship with John Byrne, <laughs> you know, on, as an editor. And I had similar experience with him later on when we were uh, we, we were uh, co-creators on stuff. Now, with that run on West Coast uh, that John Byrne was writing, uh, and a, f- a few questions came in from listeners just wanted to know about you know how things were working throughout the run. Uh, primarily, uh, were there long-term plans for the vision after Byrne kind of altered him, or was it supposed to go in a different direction prior to Byrne leaving? I, I, you know, honestly, I, I, I will be totally honest. The specifics of that, I don't remember. And that's fair. I, it's a long I, time I, ago. I know John, yes, had um, specific plans because I know John, <laughs> and I know how he and I worked. I cannot say that I, I really remember what they are, or where they they deviated from um, from where it it went after he left, because you know there've been a lot of stories that have happened in my head, <laughs> and, you know, between uh, now and then. Okay. Um, now this, I don't know if you can answer this or not, but what what led to that run ending kind of prematurely? I, you know, I, I can I can make something up. <laughs> I, I think there was there was a uh, a disagreement not with me but perhaps with um, uh, things that John had started to do my, my recollection is that much of it came down to um, uh, changing the Scarlet Witch's costume um, and that um you know, we we changed her costume and cut off her hair, and I I do remember getting um, a bit of uh, grief about that uh, from the editor in chief at the time because um, perhaps I did not ask permission, and I was uh, informed that there was potential licensing conflicts when so no character could be changed without. Uh, a write-off on it, and um, I, I, I honestly, I don't remember specifically, but it just it became a situation where John w- was at a point where he didn't really need to do what other people wanted him to do, and just said, "Well, okay, well then, if if, if we need to make other changes, why don't you get somebody else to do it?" And that was it. Um, and we certainly didn't have any uh, hard feelings about it. Uh, because he and I uh, continued to work together afterwards. Um, but yeah, that I mean that honestly, I wish I could tell you it was a big scandalous story. <laughs> I, I I have to tell you most of the big scandalous stories I've read uh, in the fan press over the years, not specifically about this, but about many things. Uh, you know, they speak to um, um, you know much more. Um, uh, I don't know. I, you know when you know what it is when people speak to you know when they, they use the group uh, uh, think of Marvel. Well, Marvel does this and Marvel does that. You know what Marvel was? I can't speak to how it is. It was a, a, a it was a collective of individuals, and there were there were some individuals that had more authority than others. But for the most part, what made Marvel um, work as well as it did um, in uh, the eighties and 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 the nineties was that. Um, editors uh, had a degree of autonomy uh, that I don't think exists as much in comic books at Marvel, DC, 
or many other places uh, these days. And so whenever people, I've also heard people bandy about um, lists of writers and artists who have been blacklisted. Um, and I, I can tell you, I never saw a, a, a list uh, that was, was black, white, or green. Uh, it was, you know, that 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 speaks to a, a, a level of cooperation that I don't think existed <laughs> at the time. People people work with the individuals that can get the work done, or at least, and and who can generate sales, and that's how it was done back then. Now, this question might fall into the same category of it's been too long, so you know sure. the memory may not uh, have a, an answer for this. But there's another listener question, which was uh, uh, whose idea was it to introduce the uh, Wonder Man plot point of his having feelings for Wanda? Uh, would it, it would have been John's idea. I mean, I, you know, ideas <laughs> in general uh, came um, came from from John, as I said early on. You, you hire uh, the the creator that will um, uh, best be able to shepherd the, the characters along. I think there it seemed, um, my recollection, and even in hindsight, it seemed natural because there was a, a relationship between uh, all three of those characters in in the Marvel history, between Wonder Man and the original Human Torch and the original Human Torch and um, um, uh Vision and Vision and Scarlet Witch, and I mean, it was, what he was going for was kind of a classic uh, love triangle, and um, uh, uh, so just the simple answer to that question is that would have been John's. Okay. Now we come to Ghost Rider. Ah, yes, I, I remember. Uh, <laughs> now with Ghost Rider, how, how did you pitch relaunching Ghost Rider, and what inspired the Danny Ketch version? Okay. Um, as much of my early career, I, I, I was uh, forced into it by Mark Grunwald. <laughs> um, at the time, I, I was still on staff as an editor. Um, Mark was the executive editor under Tom DeFalco as the editor-in-chief, and they were considering um, relaunching Ghost Rider. So they had put out, uh, they, they let it be known that they were looking for pitches. And I guess they had gotten some early pitches in, and perhaps it, you know what was there was not what they were looking for. And they um, so Mark Grunwald came into my office one day and said, "You know, Howard, you're, you we're always talking about Ghost Rider. You're a big fan, and, you know." And I, I probably said, "Yeah, it's you know a flaming skull demon riding a motorcycle. What is not to like?" <laughs> and uh, he said, "Well, we want to do the book. Why don't you pitch?" I said, "Oh no, Mark. You know, I'm, you know, I'm doing." And at that point, I was not doing any um, regular work. I mean, I was, as you pointed out, it was a you know a series of um, fill-ins, and you know there were a couple, you know there was I think three three issues of Chuck Norris and his Karate Commandos, and about the same of uh, uh, Air Raiders. And he said, "Well, you know what? Really, I, I, I really would like you to, to do a pitch." And I said, "Okay, fine." So I, I that's how I came up with the pitch, and they had some parameters. They really. I, I would have preferred to have used uh, Johnny Blaze because um, I, it was the character that I, <laughs> I I I was a fan of, and it's and it's a a really cool name <laughs> for a character, and so, but they they did they specifically didn't want to go with Blaze because what people have to know is that the earlier 
renditions of Ghost Rider while they were, I mean, what the, the earlier version of the, the earlier Ghost Rider series, um, you know, I had real affection for it. It did not sell terribly well. It was, which is why it was canceled. And so they wanted to try something totally different. So I, you know, took the most basic of uh, writing uh, philosophies that one learns, which is write what you know. And I decided to have a kid who, who was being raised by a single mother in Cypress Hills, Brooklyn, and hung out in the cemeteries. And just pretty much heard the first uh, 23 years of my life <laughs> you know that, that that is that is me anything the the, the the spots in the cemetery you say i took photographic reference for uh javier to uh uh to draw from um and so and in terms of the name dan catch um the names are the hardest things in the world to come up with for for characters and so i started um I, I started looking up things, and there was a, um, I found a, a, a folktale about um, the, uh, um, uh, uh, it, it was a, a mythical hangman um, hmm. in England who, who, who was uh, called uh, Jack Ketch, and uh, so that was the original name of, of the character, it was going to be Jack Ketch, but when you say that really fast... It, 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 it doesn't sound catch. It sounds like one word, possibly uh, you know, a character from Star Wars. Um, <laughs> and so I, I changed it to, to Danny because I liked the name Danny. <laughs> I like any name other than Howard. Uh, so you know, I, I, you know, growing up with the name Howard as a kid in Brooklyn, not a lot of fun. So I wanted to have my characters have names that I would have preferred to have been named. And so, and then I took the Jack name, um, and he became um, uh, 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 Danny's best friend. Um, so, yeah. So that's um, that's how uh, I wound up um, developing the character and using the name. Now, how did um, how did Javier end, end up becoming the penciler? Like, were you involved in that selection process? That that go to the sure. editor or no? I mean, I probably uh, uh, Bobby Chase was the editor, and, and she she is a, a good friend still. Uh, she probably had shown me um, who she was thinking of using, um, but um, no, I would I, I don't think I would have. I mean, I probably looked, and I mean, you look at Javier's work, and I went, oh yeah, okay, good. What if we can get him? What you have to understand, though, at the time is nobody thought Ghost Rider was going to succeed. As a matter of fact, and I talk to Tom DeFalco about this all the time, it was almost killed as an ongoing series about four or five times um, because the marketing department and sales department did not think it could could sell. And so I, I actually had to do multiple pitches for Ghost Rider because I originally pitched it as an ongoing series, which is what um, uh, Mark and Tom wanted but then sales came and said no you can't do it so why don't, why don't we just do it as a uh, graphic novel so and every time you, you change format it changes the pacing of a story so I had to retail the basic story to get it into a self-contained uh, one shot for a graphic novel and then they came back and said well no graphic novels aren't really selling right now so we think you know um, uh, 
uh, Frank Miller just did this um, uh, this thing with Batman called The Dark Knight, and he did it in in this format that is like a you know a small version of a graphic novel, but it, it can be like a, a limited series. So yeah, why don't we do that? So I had to retailer it again, and then they thought, oh no, it's not going to work as that. So let's um, uh, let's just do it as a regular limited series. We'll, we'll publish it for six or twelve issues. We're not sure yet, and so I had to retail it again, and finally Tom. And then, then they wanted to cancel it again. And finally, Tom DeFalco put his foot down and said, you know, the, the hell with it. Uh, we're doing it the way we wanted to. And we went back to launching it as a, um, a, a regular series. And the first issue sold very well. The second and third issue, and this happens because of the way, you know, uh, comics are ordered um, in advance. They had, they had taken a small dip down. And then issue four went through the roof and that's when I think around the time when we started going to reprints and um, I think um, uh, the person who was the head of uh, the sales department came in and apologized to Tom for giving uh, him a hard time about uh, not getting the, the, the series approved so it, it, how that relates to your original question which is you know if you think about it Javier was not you know a, uh, a big hot artist at the time um, this was just who he was a really talented artist that was not getting a lot of work at the time who would, would you know Bobby thought would be ideally suited for um, a book written by a guy who didn't have any real track record with a character that nobody thought was going to succeed and if we were on a uh, real Skype right now I, you would see me just you know sticking my finger up to my nose and wiggling my fingers and saying ha 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 <laughs> <laughs> But um, yes, so uh, that that you know that's how Javier got on, and and, and Mark Texera was inking, and um, they they I believe at the time they were related, you know through through marriage. Um, I, I I don't believe that's the case anymore, <laughs> and I, I don't I don't remember what that you know the story is there. But um, um, yeah, and and so then when when um, Javier left the book, and I don't recall why. It was a natural transition to have Mark um, um, uh, take over from there. Now, you, you mentioned obviously that you know the, the issue four kind of blew up, and suddenly it felt like Ghost Rider was everywhere. What, yes. What was that like to see your creation grow in popularity like that? Uh, it, it, it was uh, very much a mixed blessing <laughs> um, because obviously the the more. Uh, it happened. The more attention that came to Ghost Rider, uh, it it um, uh, it was good for the book. Um, the problem was it started to. Um, I, I felt like there, there was overkill. Um, uh, um, you know, go, I think Ghost Rider. Yeah, I mean, he was at everywhere. He was in. He was in uh, Spider Man, the Fantastic Four. You know, because what they found is, and this happens periodically. Put him on the you put him on the cover of a comic book and the sales they, they popped right up and um, so to a certain extent it was it, I, you know was very pleased that you know this this character I was involved with um, was getting so much attention but suddenly this character I was involved with was getting so much attention <laughs> and that everybody was getting their 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 fingers into it and it became an issue for me but probably more so for Bobby because I meant, as I explained earlier with Marvel Comics Presents this is a bunch of additional stuff she had to read and approve 
backstory behind the creation of the uh, the Ghost Rider Wolverine Punisher Hearts of Darkness original graphic novel that you did with John Romita? I, well, John Romita I believe wanted to do something <laughs> with me. You know, because again you know, Ghost Rider uh, was, was popular um, and um, I we, we were looking for a sales directed um, project I mean, you know, we, meaning um, Bobby Chase, who was the editor, what, you know, she was being being told, you need to come up with something with Ghost Rider that will sell. And I had a particular affinity for the characters that existed in the, the darker corners of the Marvel Universe. You know, certainly Ghost Rider and Punisher, who would be, be one of them. And... Um, and then I think at that point we had done, I, I think I had done, you know, a Punisher uh, guest shot in Ghost Rider and probably the Wolverine uh, guest shot, or, or maybe that was the X-Men uh, one. And so we, I, I had this idea that I wanted to do, and John Romita wanted to be on board, and so we just we just did it. I mean, and that, that was the upside to the popularity of Ghost Rider, was <laughs> I had an idea... They knew it would sell, so I got to do it and happened to have gotten to work with, you know, one of the more phenomenal artists in the in the business. Um, and um, I, I, you know, so that that's how it, it came about. I'm going to jump ahead a little bit because it because of that, because of Hearts of Darkness, that's how I wound up doing um, the uh, Gambit first Gambit uh, limited series that I did with Lee Weeks. Um, and do you want me to go into that now, or? Yeah, absolutely. I was going to get there, so yeah, get us there early. Um, I walked into the office. At this point, I was I was off staff. I uh, at a certain point after Ghost Rider took off, um, and the birth of my first daughter and my second daughter was on the way. I realized I was I was going to take a leap of faith and leave staff. I had been working at Marvel for exactly seven years. I was on Marvel editorial. Seven years to the day. I know that because Mark Grunewald told me when I had started, and he suggested I 
uh, leave on the, the the anniversary of the day I started. <laughs> it's a mistake, but I don't have to go into that <laughs> because I had decided to leave um, about you know a month and a half early, and uh, he talked me into extending my two week notice to a six week notice, and that made me realize why people give two week notices because at the end of two weeks you're done. <laughs> but I I did it so I could say that I worked exactly seven years on staff at Marvel and now you, you've heard it in the pro- podcast but um, <laughs> I um, uh, oh gosh I just lost my train of thought uh, what was the question <laughs> well you were jumping ahead to tell us about Gambit oh uh, yes Gambit so I was up at the office um, after I, 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 I was off staff and um, with the I walked into the office the day that the sales figures came out on Hearts of Darkness And from across the bullpen, I saw my friend Bob Harris, who was the X-Men editor at the time. And he, you know, Bob and I, very good friends and remain very good friends to this day. But we, at that point, we had not worked together at all. Actually, I was the assistant editor on his uh, uh, Nick Fury, Agent of S.H.I.E.L.D. uh, series. But um, Bob Howard, how you doing? Come here. <laughs> it's a very Bob Harris thing. He put his arm around my shoulder, and even though I'm significantly taller than he is, and Howard, walk with me, walk with me. And we were talking. He said, "Oh, so I saw the, um, the 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 sales figures on Hearts of Darkness." And I said, "Yeah, yeah, I hear it. they did pretty well." He said, "Oh yeah." At that point, I hadn't actually seen the sales figures. He said, "Oh, they did really well." He said, "Have you ever considered doing anything uh, for the X office?" <laughs> And I said, I, I, I can't say I had. And he said, Well, you should think about it. Is there is there any character that you like that you might want to do like a limited series about or something? And I said, eh, I don't know. I said, You know, uh, the, the X continuity. It's so deep. I said, I, I really like what Chris did with this new character, Gambit. And he said, Okay. Well, next time you're in the office, let's do lunch. <laughs> and that's how I wound up getting the. Uh, uh, the uh, Gambit uh, limited series assignment uh, because uh, you know I seem to be a, uh, a, a, a marketable commodity at that point and when, so I, I and that I did with uh, Lee Weeks and Klaus Janssen and, and that that did very well as well <laughs> and it got me a trip to New Orleans. <laughs> oh really? Well, yeah, we, yeah, we did we did uh, two store signings down in New Orleans. <laughs> very nice. Now I, I'll I'll jump ahead as well with you, but uh, sure. with I, I mean. As you said, the editor kind of would end up picking the artist. Did you have any kind of... What was your collaboration like with uh, Lee Weeks? Well, again, I had a previously established relationship with Lee um, because some of Lee's earlier work for Marvel <laughs> was for my office. Oh, okay. Um, and I'm a huge... Still remain a huge fan of Lee's work. Um, he, but he... He did... Um, uh, it, he did Justice when I was editing the New Universe line of books. That's right. Um, and he did um, uh, some Destroyer uh, books that I mentioned earlier, the uh, the adaptation, the black and white adaptation I had done of um, the Remo Williams uh, books, the Destroyer. Uh, Lee, Lee did a couple of those for me. So Lee and I had working experience together, and as I said, I'm, I'm, I'm just a huge fan of his artwork. So when... Um, when Bob asked me what I thought about working with Lee, I jumped at the opportunity as well. Um, so yeah, yeah, that's uh, you know I don't I, I I don't think I was ever I I, I, I can't remember ever 
asked, but it was always a "What do you think?" Uh, type of situation. Now let's let's go back a little bit. Um, how did you get the uh, or how did the run come about on Web of Spider Man? Um, <laughs> so the the yeah, I can take you through a couple of steps of Spider Man history with that. I decided to go freelance, as I said, because I had this one book and I decided before we knew that it was going to, whether it would be successful or not. Okay. <laughs> I, it was a leap of faith, but I was, I was burning a candle at too many ends and I had decided to take a shot at going freelance. What happened was I went into Tom DeFalco. I told him what I was going to do. He said, okay, well, one, one, we'll give you a contract, which was great, which meant I basically maintained all of my benefits <laughs> in terms of um, uh, health insurance and that kind of stuff. And I was guaranteed a certain amount of money as long as I could make the work. Uh, so I decided to do it. But even at that, it was, you know, we were, well, what happened was after my daughter was born, we were considering my wife going back to work because she had a much better job. Uh, working for a children's television workshop, the, the, the Sesame Street people. Oh, wow. And um, I was going to stay at home and raise the family while I was, uh, you know, writing. And, you know, basically raise the child in my spare time while I was writing. And, of course, you learn very early on, if you have any children, that that doesn't happen. So I left staff, and I thought, okay, well, I, I, I was told at that point that Ghost Rider was going to do well and it was going to make some money, um, but I didn't know what that meant. Uh, because you, we, we do get uh, what are called incentives, not, not, not royalties, because royalties connotes uh, uh, ownership. But it's an incentive to write something that will sell enough and you're paid something akin to a royalty. Um, and, but it was, it was a leap of faith. So I, I signed my contract and I wasn't sure what was going to happen. And I no sooner walked back to my office that Danny Fingeroff said, so I hear you're going freelance. I really like what you've been doing on, on Ghostwriter and all the other stuff if you want to take uh, over Web of Spider-Man. And you'll get to work with Alex Savia again. <laughs> so I said, yes. <laughs> because now, you know, two books was going to be exactly right for me. Um, and so I did Web of Spider-Man for a while. I don't remember how long. But at that point, then, more and more work started flooding in. And... That's when I did the the Havoc Wolverine. No, it wasn't Havoc Wolverine. Jeez, I have to look that up. Uh, <laughs> um, the, the Havoc feature for Marvel Comics Presents, and there was a point at which I had I, I I was I was scripting something involving Ghost Rider, something involving Peter Parker, and something involving uh, Havoc. Spider-Man. So I did. And 
and um, and I thought it was a good decision, and that lasted for about two months. Um, and um, I walked in to uh, <laughs> to Danny's office, and he he said, "So I heard, you know, uh, Todd's leaving um, what we refer to as adjectiveless uh, Spider-Man. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, you know, you want to take over?" And I looked at him and I said, "Danny." What made you think that my objection was the adjective? <laughs> and that wasn't a problem. He said, "Well, you know, but I think you do, do good. Well, at least do. I think I think my first issue was maybe issue number twenty-five, which had to do with the big uh, that demon uh, crossover where I created the very poorly named Demo Goblin. Um, and uh, so I, I did that issue, and then suddenly I was uh, the regular writer of uh, Adjectiveless Spider-Man. And so, you know, that's <laughs> that's how that was my my Spider-Man uh, start. What <laughs> happened that way? I I just I think what happened was by the time I walked into Danny's office, I had finished up the feature for involving Havoc for uh, Marvel Comics Presents, and so I thought, okay, yeah, I like Spider-Man, so yeah, I'll do it. <laughs> now, with Adjective List, you also in, uh, introduced uh, Craven the Hunter's son, Grim Hunter. Yes. Uh, and then you dispatched him relatively quickly. Yeah. <laughs> you, yeah, I did. You, uh, you offered him up as a sacrifice to Kane. Yes. Now, what yes. what was that like, you know, trying to create a character to be this kind of the, a legacy character for Craven the Hunter? And then why did you decide to, to dump him? Because, uh, well, number one, I hated the name. And this goes back to what I just said about Demo Goblin. I love Danny Fingeroth, one of the best editors I've ever worked with. Here was his only fault that I could give you. Is some I, I remember earlier on I said one of the hardest things is naming characters. Okay? And when you're writing a story sometimes, you you can't let that stop you from moving forward with the story. So instead of just sitting there and cogitating on the name of the new character, what I would do is I would put in a spaceholder name. Okay? And so in the case of um, uh, Demo Goblin. I was creating this character, and he was supposed to be a demonic version of um, the Hobgoblin. Okay, so yeah, and now we see Demo Goblin. <laughs> this is a this, and I would always put in parentheses. This is a, a a working name only. I will come up with something that doesn't sound so stupid. <laughs> and the next thing I know, the solicits are out. You know, when the solicits have to go out and it's, you know, Spider-Man versus the Demo Goblin. And I went, oh, crap. So then I was stuck with it because they solicited it and you can't change things from the solicit. At least back then you could not because the uh, books became returnable. Mm. I think I would have learned my lesson when I was coming up with the, the son of Craven. And I said, yo, he's like, I, I want him to be an even grimmer version of Craven. So, we'll call him the Grim Hunter for now. Grim Hunter, I mean, sometimes what happens with characters is sometimes you, you have grand and glorious plans and you bring them into the mix and um, stories take on a life of their own and maybe the character didn't work out as well. And also, as well as you had hoped, also, you know, in this case, and I'm sure we're going to be going into the Clone Saga soon, uh, you know, had this new storyline with new characters with with Kane and we were trying to show 
that Kane was going to have a real impact on the Marvel Universe. And so that, you know, I, I felt like uh, I was willing to to sacrifice uh, the Grim Hunter, uh, if for no other reason than to get rid of the name. Uh, <laughs> and so, yeah, so that that's really how we come I mean, and honestly, you know, and the, and as we will go into, the, the, the Clone Saga really took on a life of its own. For sure. Now, before we get to the Clone Saga, I want to at least ask, uh, after having done a Gambit miniseries, you then also wrote uh, the Rogue miniseries. Yes. So that was Rogue's first kind of solo effort. Um, yeah. what, what was that like working with Mike Ringo? Uh, what was your kind of your your take on the character? I, you know, I, I would say, I mean, I think the reason I got that assignment was because of the success of the Gambit um, uh, series. I would say it perhaps was was a mistake for me to have taken it on. I didn't have as much of an affinity for the character. I mean, any any affinity I had for, for Rogue was from the, the, the uh, Gambit side of it. Um, working with Mike was fantastic because it's Mike Moringo. And I mean, and that, that is really how I feel about artists that I work with. It's, you know, I get this gift when I'm, I'm given the, not only the opportunity to work with the artists, but you know, then every time I get to see pages, um, I, um, I, 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 you know, it was, (laughs) I, I preferred my Gambit limited series. <laughs> say, say, say that. Um, I don't. I don't remember a lot. I just. It just was perhaps not uh, the right fit for me. Okay, so let's 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 talk some clones. Oh yeah. So obviously, you you weren't the writer who came up with the concept. I believe that's been blamed on Terry Kavanaugh. At every given opportunity, I blame it on Terry Kavanaugh. Terry is a very good friend of mine, and I repeatedly throw him under the bus for this uh he um he likes to say i'm i uh, we misunderstood what he was saying he he had thought it should be a big multi uh issue crossover involving aunt may and that he was saying the crone saga (laughs) saga um but realistically question and I, I, I can, I can. Well, no, go, go ahead, please. Well, what happened was, you know, it, the, the Clone Saga was, came about right at the time where we were starting to get a sense of the, um, uh, the collector's bubble um, starting to uh, deflate. And um, we, were, we were all at a, um, a writer's conference with editors and were tasked with coming up with a big crossover that was going to, you know, compete with the death of Superman, what death of Superman had done, and, you know, try to, to raise sales. And uh, this and the first Spider-Man. And um, we um, really were just bouncing ideas around. And Terry approached me after the, um, the maybe before the first meeting, and had remembered the impact that the Roy Thomas, no, I'm sorry, <laughs> Jerry Conway um, uh, uh, original clone story had had on him. And he said, and Howard, you know, if you think about it, there was never really any serious resolution to it. 
and you know, I, so I started. I, I was familiar with the stories, but I went back and I looked at it, and I, there were a couple of things that jumped out at me. And one of them was that um, you know, Spider-Man's solution to disposing of the body was to dump it down a, uh, a smokestack. And you know, I, I, I'm not an engineer. I don't I don't know a lot about buildings, but I'm I'm pretty sure that at the bottom of the smokestack is not fire <laughs> directly. <laughs> you know, there's usually you know a turn or two and that that kind of thing. So you know, I don't know that the body was necessarily going to be cremated. So I you know that that started kicking stuff around, and Terry and I did talk about things, and then brought it up to to everybody who was at the meeting, all of whom were tasked with the same thing, and we threw it out on the table, and we were met with immediate resistance uh, from everybody until the writers started thinking about the story and all the, the, the story possibilities. And But the editor, uh, Danny Fingeroth, was completely opposed to it. He said, there's no way we're going to um, be able to do this. You know, Tom DeFalco, who was editor-in-chief at that time, he was not writing any of the books, will never allow us to do it. And we said, well, then you know what? Let us pitch it to him. And he, uh, and we said to him, when you go back, don't talk to Tom. Do not tell him the story. Uh, because we knew how Danny would do it. It would be some version of, uh, the guys, they came up with this version of the story. I'm not really sure if it works. And then, you know, that's not the way to pitch any story. <laughs> you know, no. it's not a positive uh, um, presentation. So we said, bring Tom to us tomorrow. We will pitch it to him. He agreed to us. Next morning, we show back up at the hotel. Tom walks in. He said, what are you guys talking about? Something with a clone. <laughs> when we went to, went to Danny and said, are you kidding me? <laughs> and so we, at that point, everybody was on board, you know, including uh, Mark DeMattis. And, you know, Mark came with a, perhaps a degree of gravitas that uh, uh, Terry and I did not have. And um, so Tom started taking it more seriously, and um, at, by the end, and actually, we were we we had this habit of you know telling the story, acting out the story to a certain extent. And at one point, one or more of us—I'm not going to say it was necessarily me, but it was me—that was jumping up on a table and yelling out story points. And at which point, there was a knock on the door to the conference room. It was in a Midtown Manhattan motel hotel. And um, it was somebody from uh, the front desk saying, we're getting complaints from people in the other conference rooms that you guys are making too much noise. And at which point Tom DeFalco said, you know what, if my guys are this loud and this excited, I'm good with that. <laughs> he said, so you guys either have to find us another room or maybe you need to find them another room. And that was it. <laughs> and so that's how the clone story got approved. It was meant, and I have the original notebook, it was to be a three-month story arc. And I've told this in other interviews, but I, I do have the, the, the proof of, it was, because we figured out, we had a year's worth of stories in this, um, and it was uh, three months spread over four issues. It's 12 issues, which is the equivalent of a year's worth of stories. We would be in, out, done. It was going to be a tight story. And at the end of which, you were going to believe that um, uh, um, Ben was Peter and Peter was Ben. 
Okay, so the roles were reversed. And because the other thing that people were always tasked with was finding a way to make, uh, give us a unmarried uh, Spider-Man again. And this was going to be the solution to it. And Peter um, and Mary Jane were going to be able to go off and have a, a life happily ever after. And Ben would be the, 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 the young, uh, free guy who could have Spider-Man adventures. And I guess it wouldn't be the first time you were involved in getting MJ out of the book. <laughs> yeah, well, uh, isn't that the first time I sorry, was... Sorry, it wouldn't be the last time. Yes, that's right. <laughs> and, um, <clears throat> but um, we also knew uh, that there might be some uh, pushback on, on that. And so we were prepared to write the other story <laughs> of, you know, you do it, you have a you know three more months or six months or however long fans would tolerate it, and then you bring it back and say, "Oh no, this was the, the you know somebody was deceiving you on this level, and we get it. We can reset it if if needs be, or if suddenly Ben Riley was very popular um, and people liked an unmarried Spider-Man. I, I don't think that would ever work. Uh, <laughs> you you know we we would just leave it in place." And unfortunately, what happened was the Clone Saga was in many parts guilty of its own success and a lot of internal uh, machinations up at Marvel because that's about when the market was starting to seriously tank and um, sales across the board were dropping at a precipitous rate, except for Spider-Man sales. Um, They were not. And whether they were going up or not at the beginning... I don't really recall, but they weren't falling as quickly as everything else. And so we were told by marketing, because again, other things have changed in terms of corporate takeover of Marvel, and that was when we went into the five editor-in-chief system, where um, Danny Fingeroth was no longer the the editor of all the Spider-Man books, but he was working within a group under uh, Bob Bielski. And so now suddenly there were different visions that were involved in the clone story people who were not involved at its uh, uh, conception uh, that were suddenly having voices into it and for better or worse um, and we were told you have to keep that story going stretch the story so suddenly this very tight self-contained three month story got dragged out for six months and then a year and then what happened was then we started talking, okay, well, now we have to figure out how to get us out of this whole clone. Sorry, so that took like another year and a half for endless, endless meetings. I was on four-hour phone conferences where we were talking about things and how we couldn't do such and such because some point of continuity that it happened you know, 15 years earlier would contradict it and all that. It, 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 it was not fun. <laughs> and um, I probably would not have... <clears throat> stuck it out to the end if I hadn't been um, contractually obligated at that point. I had a different contract at Marvel and I, I was stuck there. Um, so You have an interesting distinction actually because you were writing Spider-Man both before, during, mm-hmm. and after the Clone Saga and actually a, a well beyond after it ended. So it's kind of interesting that you're yeah. the one that stuck around the longest and I guess that's yeah. why. Yeah, I was last man standing. Um, I was, uh, I mean it got to a point 
after the the clone saga was resolved when we finally did it and um i was approached to write they they pared down from four spider-man books to two and they decided they only wanted one writer on the, the two books and i think it was between me and tom defalco and you know they 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 chose me um um and that was you know that was it and yes and so then i yeah i went on with spider-man um beyond that i i enjoyed some of that again i think maybe i was a little shell-shocked from the whole clone saga experience and i might have been um uh i think the book and i would have been better served to have left earlier uh, but again, I, I, I had a contract that I had to <laughs> uh, adhere to. What would you say? What, sorry, go ahead. My contract ended right before I uh, I, le- I left Spider-Man. Now, how would you, uh, what would you say were kind of the, your personal highlights and lowlights writing Spider-Man during that period? I mean, it's a, a fairly long period because, as you said, yeah. it, it was before the Clone Saga started and up until the early 2000s. So what what was that, what would you say were some of your, your high points and low points during that period? Uh, I, I'm, I'm, I'm struggling with the, the high points. because I mean, there were, definitely were some. I Actually, I enjoyed some of the last stuff I did. Some I, I was dead set against... Um, the green, the return of uh, Norman Osborn. Um, I that I I didn't want that to happen. <laughs> um, I I'm pleased that we did ultimately because I got to uh, write stories with Norman and I think he's a fascinating character. Uh, so I actually I quite enjoyed that and I, I've had fans come up to me. I have one one fan that's come up to me who has the the, the, the one that kind of final confrontation issue uh, between uh, Norman and. And Peter, he's got the whole thing memorized and has recited uh, dialogue to me. And I'm never sure if I should be thrilled, which I am, or or terrified, which I mildly am. Um, <laughs> um, but um, so I, I would consider that a high point. I, I mean, but you know, I got to work with phenomenal artists, and there were uh, there were a number of things that that I enjoyed. I, I can tell you one one issue that jumps out at me as. Um, a real low point, and I always cringe when people come to me at conventions and ask me to sign it. Can't remember the exact issue, but it was um, it involved a, a whole virtual reality scenario. Oh yes! Oh my god! And Spider-Man, the virtual reality Spider-Man had like two Uzis, and you know, and, and only you know, look, I wrote it. My name's on it. My bad wasn't my idea <laughs> i'm not gonna blame anybody else but i will say i i i, I always cringe i said do you really want me to sign this <laughs> it, it, it 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 really really uh um bothers me that i i, I wrote that <laughs> that's funny um, I've always been a big fan of your work on Peter Parker Spider-Man 75 would actually end the clone saga. Yeah, that, that's the one that I was talking about. Yeah, I think... That's a double-sized issue, right? Yeah, double-sized. Uh, I always thought the script was actually really, really good. And, again, you were joined by John Demeter Jr., who nailed it, so... Yeah, oh yeah, uh, that, that, that would be my particular uh, highlight. I felt like I, uh, um, in terms of the clone saga, I felt like I went out on a high note. Uh, for, uh, oh, for sure. I think the clone saga. I think. I mean, it's interesting for me because I was not 
that old when the Clone Saga was going, and then I hadn't really started buying Spider-Man comics regularly until just as it was ending. And in fact, I think I remember picking up issue seventy-five as it ended, and was like, "Oh, so something just ended, <laughs> like something big, big just happened." But uh, yeah. you know, I was only like thirteen years old, so I mean, I'm considerably younger, I guess. Uh, but I was, I, I think. No, no, it's funny when I launched Ghost Rider, I was uh, seventeen. Uh, <laughs> 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 but uh, so I've I've always really enjoyed that issue, I and mean, that was a huge part of when I was really coming into reading Spider-Man. Uh, that issue, I mean, I, I was just like, wow, this is this is a really good book. So I mean, I, I actually reread it yesterday in preparation for our interview. I'm like, it still holds up really well. It's a really tight script. Well, thank you. I'll have to reread it at some point. I I have to say, I'm not a big. Um, I, I I don't reread my. <laughs> you know what? That, that that's okay. I don't listen to podcasts that I do because I, okay, I, I I can't I, listen to my I voice. Probably not listen to this either because I will be horrified at the sound of my voice. That's how um, I feel all the time, and I've done three hundred of these. You'd think I'd get over it, but it hasn't happened yet. Yep, yep. So um, yeah, so yeah. That I mean, I I enjoyed that. I have heard uh, and seen rumors on the internet that I didn't I mean because people don't really want to like my work sometimes <laughs> that I had read some rumors that I hadn't scripted it that uh, Paul Jenkins had to go in and uh, uh, fix it oh really yeah um, it's tied in with a whole bunch of other stuff that I, I, I guess I just spoke to Paul about this recently I, I actually had not heard that rumor um, until about a year ago and I, so I, I contacted Paul and he he just said, yeah, you know, but what we did at that time when you worked on uh, crossovers was um, you, your, your script went, you know, I got his script, he got my script so that we could, you know, cite anything that might, um, um, uh, you know, so that we can make it a smooth transition. Mm. So, you know. I, I did write that issue. If people like it, it is because I wrote it, <laughs> not, not, not because Paul, who is a much more talented writer than I am. Uh, uh, but it, they're not his words. <laughs> uh, quick, two quick shots. Uh, first is I just I hadn't even remembered this until as we were talking, but um, you mentioned not like in the demogoblin name, but then again you you killed the character off as well. So, I mean, you, I guess you're kind of a, a, you're a serial killer on your own that you create these characters and then you, you dispatch them. Absolutely. It, it is what I always say. You know, somebody asked me a question I have on my, my Facebook uh, page, and any of your listeners should feel free to friend request me on Howard Mackey Writer on Facebook. And um, somebody asked me um, what it's like to be a writer and, you know, of comic book characters and all that Essentially, you're a god <laughs> to these characters. They live and die um, at your whim. The only problem is the editor of the book ranks slightly higher god. <laughs> so <laughs> you live and die at their whim. Uh, another question I had, I've, I've always enjoyed, uh, I mean, you may not remember the specific issue, but there was an issue right near the end of Peter Parker's Spider-Man before it got relaunched when you worked with John Byrne, which uh, had uh, Peter Parker and Norman Osborn stuck in an elevator shaft. Oh, yeah. And uh, I always actually really enjoyed that issue. I remember reading the solicits when it came out. Again, I was only like 15 years old, but I really enjoyed um, the the the, ten- the tension in that issue. Uh, and I, 
it brings me to a question, which is, did you enjoy writing Norman more as Green Goblin or as Norman being an evil, manipulative dick? Uh, the, the, the latter. Um, I mean, that, that is what I said about, I was not a big fan of bringing Norman back initially. What I was really not a fan of was bringing the Green Goblin back. Originally because I felt like there are very few deaths that have real impact in the Marvel Universe. And as a younger reader, seeing Norman Osborn, the Green Goblin, impaled by his own glider, that had an impact. Um, And so I really resisted bringing him back. I would have preferred to even have brought Harry back before Norman. But once I got a hold of Norman and got to play him as the evil manipulative dick that he did. I mean, he's just such a powerful character on so many levels that, you know, so I, I, I was very grateful that I had the opportunity to do that. Now, I know we have to wrap up in just a moment, but I at least want to make sure we at least touch on Mutant X. Yes. Now, before Mutant X came about, you were writing X Factor for a couple years. Yeah. Um, what was what was it like writing X Factor during that tenure, and then how did Mutant X come about? Well, I I enjoyed um, writing X Factor. It um, you know I, I mean you look at the artists that I I I, uh, I got to to work with, and uh, you know again I, I've been very fortunate in my career uh, regarding the artists that I've worked with, but I felt like again I wasn't sure. I, I, I think to a certain extent, you know, team, book, team books are hard to write. And it was a d- dynamic that was set up prior to, to my coming on the book. And I, I, I think I, I, I floundered with it a little bit. And um, sales were not doing really well. And we decided to make a real change. And it, for me, it always, you know, with it's you know, one line, which is, I remember dying. And, you know, and it went from there. I think I, I, I either had a dream or I wrote down that um, that line and started thinking about what it would be like, A, to remember your own death, but also to remember a different life and to be just, you know, um, thrust into something um that was totally familiar and alien, completely alien at the same time. And uh, I'm, I'm very uh, grateful when I get a lot of fans come up to me at, at conventions um, and telling me how much they loved Mutant X. It was, it was like the, 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 the little book that could. Uh, what was good about it for me was like the earliest st- stages of Ghost Rider. Uh, nobody had any real expectations on it. I was off on my own. If you think about it, it was a a, um, um, a precursor uh, to to other stories that existed later on in the Marvel universe, <laughs> um, the Ultimate Universe. Mm-hmm. Um, in that, you know, all I was doing was taking storylines that I was very familiar with, and you know getting to a point of divergence and saying, well, what if it worked out differently? And I just got to do it. <laughs> and um, so I had, I had a great time uh, doing it. And we, we, we had a nice, a nice run on it. 
and tell me how much they, they enjoyed it. We did have a bunch of listener questions about it. Um, specifically, was uh, was Havoc originally going to restart the X Factor team when he came back to the main universe, or what? Like, did you have a, an ending in mind? Did you know how long you wanted Mutant X to run for before he came back? Like, was any of this even the, on the table at all? It wasn't. Uh, no, we, we you know we, we really just it was a a, a literal leap of faith. Uh, you know, we, we kind of jumped through that uh, space-time continuum with Havoc and uh, went from there. We were grateful when uh, the the sales seemed to support it for a while. And um, there were were not... uh, There was was no end game in mind, quite frankly. I mean, as far as I was concerned, I I wanted to keep writing in that universe. That that is what uh, interested me more. You know what? Having said that, as I'm saying that, of course there was an end game in mind. I just don't remember it. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Now, this is an interesting question, uh, which is either, I guess, basically a yes or a no question from a listener who asked, uh, were you the writer known as X on the Brotherhood miniseries? (laughs) I I get that question so much, and it's so much fun that I'm going to choose to answer by pleading the fifth. Because I love, yeah, I I, I would love to give you some sort of big scoop here, but um, I I think it's fascinating to to watch. Again, I I I actually found out about it um, long after um, the the rumors were going around because I was not as involved in the internet at the time. Facebook certainly didn't exist, and uh, I just found it so fascinating that people, because I, I could see people saying, oh, I can tell it's Howard Mackey because it's such crappy uh, writing, uh, or that, and then they're, oh, you know, I can tell it's uh, I'm trying to think of who, I mean it's been, I've seen everybody's name from from me to Neil Gaiman to uh, Joe Casada to Frank Miller to uh, a whole handful of them, and I thought at, you know, actually when I look at the names, I think, okay <laughs> thank you <laughs> Um, but, you know, I, 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 I think, uh, um, I will, uh, just allow it to remain one of those, uh, unsolved mysteries out there. Sorry, Adam. <laughs> that's, that's okay. Um, we had two listener questions and just kind of merge into one, which is, uh, were there any specific ideas or stories for Mutant X or Spider-Man that you didn't get a chance to enact that you would have liked to? Uh, I, I, I really don't look back. I mean, I you know, I, I every once in a while I come up with a new idea and say, "Ooh, that would be great for Spider-Man." I, I actually have a great idea for a Ghost Rider um, <laughs> story, um, but I don't think that's going to happen. And um, uh, it just, but I, I really, I choose not to look back. I really, I also don't. I when I stopped writing a book, I stopped uh, reading a book as well. I never, I don't ever want to be accused of criticizing. Uh, somebody's work that you know that has come in um, after me because everybody has a different approach to every character and it would be really difficult for me to go and read somebody's um, uh, ghostwriter work in particular mm-hmm. um, but um, no so I yeah are, are there stories I would like to do uh, probably <laughs> but there's nothing that is keeping me awake at night what was well, it, what was one ghostwriter story actually <laughs> okay, what was it like to um, to come back and write Spider-Man: The Clone Saga with Tom DeFalco? Oh, that was fun. 
mean, and that, that was borne out of, I, I think I, I, I told you, um, uh, I have the notebook from, um, uh, you know, our original meeting, and uh, we decided to, you know, do a story from the writer's perspective of what it was intended to do. What we discovered by the end is that we could probably do um, several versions of that same story, because even in the course of Tom and I working together, and Tom is fantastic to work with, he's a good friend, and I, I, I like him, he's a fantastic writer and editor, but we were remembering things differently. And I, I you know, I think I, if I was doing it by myself, I would have a totally different remembrance of, um, of what it what it was supposed to be like. And if I was doing it with Terry Kavanaugh, we would have a different um recollection and if I did it with Todd DeZago we would have a different recollection and, mm-hmm. and so on you know and if any one of them did it separately they, they we all have di- very different memories of how it was supposed to play out so um, um, yeah yeah um, so that's my that, that, that's the only only answer I can give to you on that one now a couple of years ago uh, after it had seemed like been a long time since we'd seen your, your kind of your name on a current comic book you uh, showed up on the Ravagers miniseries at DC. Yep. Now how did that come about? How did you like it felt like, you know, you had it's almost like you were underwater and suddenly you came up for air and you were back again. What right. uh, but what what led to that? Well, I, I was contacted by DC. Um, they 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 were relaunching, you know, they were doing the new 52. Uh, they had a concept that they wanted me to work on, and um, so they called me. We, we had a series of discussions and meetings and emails and, <laughs> and everything, and, and I, I tried to write um, a story that was as close to what I thought they wanted um, as possible. Um, wasn't a lot of me in there. I'll be very, very honest, and it's nothing against anybody at DC, but I had multiple editors it started out with with <laughs> one editor and I went through two or three editors um, because of changes up at DC and every time that happened it was a series of different uh, visions on uh, what to do with the book so uh, it was you know yeah I, I mean it was not it wasn't my favorite thing I, I more preferred I did also at the same time I did a Batman black and white story a little story and that that was a blast to work on now who'd you work on that with uh well um mark chiarella was the the editor and he he's fantastic but um it's a guy who i think is getting some work in the business he says chris samney uh was the uh <laughs> <laughs> was the artist and it was it was fantastic um um uh yeah so uh that was uh that 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 was that <laughs> Uh, now I'd, I'd love to have you on in the future to actually go through some of this stuff in, in more detail because we kind of did a, a overarching kind of look at your career in comics. Do you have any final thoughts before we sign off for the day? Uh, no, I, I am working on the only thing I would like to say is a little self promotion. I'm about hopefully to announce within the next day or two uh, uh, at least one new project that I'm um, working on that's going to uh, uh, reunite me with. Uh, an artist that I've worked with in the past, but I can't really say too much, many details right now until the ink is dry on the contract. Uh, but I would love to come back and uh, talk about 
that and answer any other questions. Well, uh, we're, we're excited to hear what that's about. Yes. Well, uh, so, yeah. Excellent. Well, thank you so much for joining us today. My, my pleasure, Adam, and I look forward to talking to you again at some point. Will do. Thank you again. Okay, take care, Adam.